Well, we continue then our series going through the, the book of Revelation. And today we find ourselves in chapters 15 and 16. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. You can also find the, the, the text as well in your worship folder. Um, before um, before we, we get going, though, just a quick recap on, on where we've been the last few weeks. Uh, we've heard stories about dragons and beasts and sealing of saints. Uh, we've come to a, a section in Revelation where there is a dragon who seeks to make war upon the church. Uh, but and he is unable to because of the victory and triumph of, of the lamb. And so he then goes and, and raises up a, a beast from, from the sea and another beast also um, to as means of pursuing and, and harassing the, the, the church and uh, putting his mark upon, uh, upon those who will fall in league with him. But yet we have the sealing of the saints, uh, the sealing of, of the church by the, uh, the Lamb of God who uh, keeps his own. And so we continue with some other visions that today that continue this, uh, this, this sequence, this, this greater story we have going on here. But before we turn to the reading of God's word, let's pray for God's blessing upon it. Lord, please speak to us this morning because we are in deep and desperate need of it. Uh, this is our life. You have the words of life for us. And so please then, we ask that you would open our hearts and our ears, that you would furrow our hearts so that the, uh, the soil of our, of our own selves would, would be a fertile and, um, and ripe for your seed to fall upon and bear much fruit by your spirit. Give us, uh, give us eyes to see that this, this, uh, the difficulties in some of, the, some of these passages and help us to see the, the beauty of Jesus in them as well. We pray this in his name. Amen. So today we're going to be Revelation 15 and 16. It is a little lengthy. Um, but this continues the, the stories which, which, which we've read here. Uh, the, we have new visions. And so uh, may God bless the reading of his word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast 
and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as has never been such as there never been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the Great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Well, does knowing the end of a story spoil it? Does knowing the end of a story spoil it? In some cases, it does. Stories and films that rely upon plot twists that take you for a ride, giving you an ending that you would have never seen or imagined possible. But there are some stories that even if you know how some part of it will end, it doesn't take away from the suspense. I finally got around to reading the Harry Potter series for the first time last year. It only took me 20 years. Uh, there were moments that were so suspenseful and had me turning through the pages in it as fast as I could, even though I knew that Harry wasn't going to die because I was on book four and there are seven books. But the drama was still there. And it was just as gripping because even though I knew part of how it would end, that Harry would come out somehow, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't know how it was going to get there or what turns would be taken along the way. In fact, it actually gave hope in certain moments 
Because I knew that at certain moments in the story, moments when it was most dangerous and the, the, the threats of danger were most treacherous there, that somehow Harry was going to make it through and go on to the next book. Well, we see something similar at the beginning of these chapters that we're looking at this morning. Uh, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. It gives a perspective of the end. And then, how, and then chapters 15 and 16, the rest of it there, shows us how we got there. It begins with a scene of victory. And then it goes back to outline a series of visions of bowls of God's wrath being poured out upon the world that will bring us then to that victory scene. And so why does, it be, why does it begin with a scene of victory? Well, if you've been tracking with us throughout this, this series, it shouldn't be too hard to figure out. To remind us of how everything ends. And even though the details might be a little bit fuzzy on how we get to that end victory, we can still have hope and trust in God throughout all the twists and turns of the drama along the way. Even when we wonder how we're going to get out of this one, when the circumstances in the world seem most dire. And the bowls of God's wrath then are the center feature of this vision. Uh, chapter 15, verse 1 says that these are the last plagues, that the wrath of God is finished with these. And if you've noticed in Revelation, the book and, uh, and sequence aren't quite chronological. In fact, it's rarely when they are chronological. But rather, it's a series of visions that are all giving angles and repetitions of many of the same events or the same periods of time. And these bowls that are, part of, that are poured out upon the earth then are no different. When it says final and last, aren't necessarily referring to a timeline, but more of the sense of completion. And a few weeks back, when uh, Daryl preached through chapters 8 and 9, we there's the, the portrayal of trumpets bringing about the great cataclysms of God's wrath. And if you remember then, if you align those of how they went here in chapter 16 with the bowls, they actually match up quite remarkably. Each bowl and trumpet are poured out on the same sphere or the same area so that they, almost, they seem almost like parallel events. And the trumpets are characteristics of the times in which we live now. Bef be, uh, be between the ascension of Jesus and his return, and so are these bowls. But there are differences also. We need to highlight the differences to really understand them. They all have different effects here. The trumpets brought about limited judgments, for one thing. Uh, oftentimes it have like a third. A third of the seas turned to blood. A third of the earth was burned, and so forth. But these bowls have no limited effect. It is God's complete, unmitigated wrath so that the stakes are heightened. And even the symbol of a trumpet, it was intended to blow a warning. But now, though, we have the bowls are being filled then, filled with God's wrath from the blood of the saints until they reach the brim and they begin to go to overflowing and it's time for them to be poured out. And it's important to see this, that they are emptied out on the domain of the beast. Uh, the dragon, uh, the beast, what it also says, the second beast, the false prophet, they figure prominently in the last two weeks here. As they are a twisted parody of the triune God, a, an unholy trinity, as you, as you will, set apart to, or set forth to sway the world and trying then to smother God's people and to wipe them out. The dragon bringing forth the beast as a symbol of power and authority over the world. 
with the second beast then promoting its cult-like following. And the, be- the beast is the domain and the, the power of the dragon over the world, set up to have cruel dominion and to exercise oppression against those who will not take on its mark, which is the church. And so now then with the bold judgments, God is rising up to rescue his people from the oppression of the beast. This is a very real wrath that the lamb has against the regime of darkness. And he will pour it out in totality against all those who take part in it. And so our first point this morning I want us to see is the wrath of the lamb. Now before we get going, we really get going here, we need to take a look at some important Old Testament background. And that's of the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus, which is also found in the book of Exodus, when, uh, when God's people Israel were enslaved by Egypt and Pharaoh, and then God rose up and rescued them from Egypt with the ten plagues. He pulled them out of the, the grip of Pharaoh, and then he led them through the, the Red Sea for their, their final rescue. And the imagery of this here is all throughout the, the, the chapter. Now just consider the victory scene that we see at the beginning here. It takes place next to a sea. And there are the saints of God who are singing praises to him for their rescue. What's intended to evoke the Red Sea for us? Again, when when God saved his people by bringing his own, Israel, safely through the sea, when he parted the waters into dry land so that his people could go through safely. And then when his enemies, when Egypt, led by Pharaoh, went through to try to go after them, he closed it back up over them. That was their, their, there was, the sea was, their, was both the salvation of Israel, but it was also the judgment of Egypt. And this is a sea, it says, mixed with fire. Fire also being a symbol of judgment. And even the victory song that the saints sing as they're standing there on the, on the banks of the, the shore there is referred to as a song of Moses. Right after Moses, led the, and right after Moses led Israel through, guess what? You have Israel standing there on the banks of the Red Sea singing a song of victory and of rescue and praise to God. And we can even go further if you're not convinced. The bulls are described as plagues. And these bulls then also reflect the ten plagues sent upon Egypt. There's a lot of overlap. Sores and boils upon the people. The seas and the waters turn to blood. Darkness, hailstones. And just as the ten plagues then hardened the heart of Pharaoh, we have the people of the world aligned with the beast refusing to repent. And we need to understand these bold judgments in the light of the exodus to really understand them, to really get them. Because part of us tenses up some when we start to read about God's wrath. But when we think about it through the lens of the Exodus, it opens up our thinking to this being much more than just a vengeful God. Now, the Old Testament Israel were slaves under an oppressive system and a tyrant who wanted to dominate them. He ruled them ruthlessly. He even murdered their baby boys on a mass scale out of fear that they would become too strong and rise up against him. He didn't care about them one bit. Only The thing that he only cared about was his own economic gain and his power. And it took God then coming down in judgment upon Pharaoh and his regime to rescue his people from this oppressive evil. The plagues in the Red Sea were the comeuppance that was due to Pharaoh. And the New Testament church lives in a world that is dominated not by Pharaoh, but that is dominated by the beast. We could think of Pharaoh in Egypt being a blurry picture of this. 
the, the dominion and the powers of the world as they are aligned with the dragon to oppress and to eradicate God's people. Even engaging in murder at times. The blood of the martyrs. And like the Exodus, Jesus the Lamb will come down to rescue his beloved people while pouring out his just judgments upon her, her oppressors and then bringing the beast regime, regime to an end. To make it a little more concrete for our context, what does it look like to live in the shadow of the beastly systems of this world? It may be the expectation of following along with those having an authoritarian mindset, to be ostracized into certain views. It may mean being shouted down and cowed into silence whenever there is a dissenting opinion, to think certain ways on sexuality, or to embrace a certain idea of liberation or utopia of who's included in that and who's not, or to face the consequences. And for some, those consequences might be a loss of friends, for others, it might be loss of job opportunities, of facing the, the sharp end of cancel culture, maybe even public shame. There are many manifestations of the beast in the world right now, bowing to leaders as saviors, the, the power of a, of a sexual agenda, white nationalism. All of these are vying for our allegiances, it has here, but they are all manifestations of the beast nonetheless. And they all bear an oppressive strength. There is an oppressive might to the beast. And we feel that. God's people will normally feel that. And you are not alone in feeling that. In fact, Jesus knows what it's like to feel the weight of oppression as people tried to make him conform into someone that they wanted him to be rather than who he actually was in accordance with the truth. And so the cries of his people then, when faced with a similar plight, don't go unheard or unnoticed by Jesus. He hears our pleas and he comes to bring justice for them. So the bulls aren't just judgments. The bulls are a means of rescue. Jesus' wrath is the, judgment, Jesus wrath is the judgment of the world and it's the rescue of his church. Now, how can Jesus, though, have this sort of wrath? How can the loving Jesus of the Gospels, the one who came to save, how can he pour out such anger and wrath like we see here in these bowls? It's because he loves the church so much. It's because he loves it with a deep love that he would come and to bring justice and freedom to his beloved. Jesus has just wrath and anger because he loves so deeply. Deep love must have expressions of anger. Anger at seeing the objects of our love being abused and wounded. See, not all wrath and anger is wrong. We're accustomed to that because of our own natures. But wrath and anger in the face of injustice and evil acts towards the innocent is not only justified, but it's even warranted. If someone who you love deeply is hurt or abused by another, your love for that person will cause a righteous indignation to well up in, inside you against the perpetrator. It's called justice. And what would your children, what would your spouse, what would a close friend who is being abused and mistreated under the thumb of an oppressor think if you didn't stand up in anger towards the one who is causing them that deep hurt? They'd probably think, do they even love me? Why don't they do something? 
True love does not allow the injustice of its beloved to go unpunished. If that is true of us, if that's true of our own thinking, tainted by our own sin, how much more true is that for the perfect and sinless Jesus? With love and justice untainted by selfishness or imperfection. He has a perfect love for his church. He has a love so deep that on the cross, he underwent the full wrath of God for his people that was due to them for their sins. Jesus knows wrath better than his saints ever will because if you are in Christ, he bore the full brunt of what you will never experience then. He did that in your place. Jesus came to rescue the church. He loves it deeply. And when he sees others seeking to to do harm to what he loves in any sort of way, whether it be physical, emotional, trying to deceive them, pulling at their identity and their understanding of truth, then he gets righteously angry. And he fully acknowledges the wrongs that are perpetrated against those who he loves, and he rises to their defense in a fitting way. And it gets personal even, because he is united to his church. So that harming his church is actually harming him. When he comes and appears to, to, uh, to Saul on the Damascus Road, who's been uh, persecuting the early church, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting, not the church, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He rescued his church from the domain of darkness and evil. He came to redeem human individuals from the clutches of the evil one. And there is no way that he will allow any force of darkness, be it personal or regime, to have their way with them. Not after what he went through to rescue them. Jesus loves his church. And he loves you who are part of it enough to be wrathful on your behalf. For Jesus to not rise up in anger and wrath. For Jesus to not be righteously angry. Or to just let it go. It would be no love at all. And it's because of the loving wrath of the Lamb that the saints of God sing this victory song. We have a couple of songs here in, in chapter 15 and, and, and in 16. 15.3, 16.7. Earlier in Revelation, in fact, yeah, the 16.7 one, I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. That's the altar speaking. Well, Earlier in Revelation, it's the martyred saints are hidden under the altar and they're given white robes as they await God's justice. And here they are now watching the events unfold and they're calling out in affirmation. There's something that probably makes some of us a little uncomfortable in thinking about this. It's not pleasant to consider God's wrath at all. We ought not to talk about it in light or careless ways if we really understand it. But we can't just brush this aside if we take the Bible seriously. God's wrath figures prominently in it. And we need to talk about it when it comes up here. We may be hesitant to sing songs of joy at God's justice in the moment. But if we have the curtain pulled back all the way to see that the way that things really are, that will cause our, our thinking to shift. So with clearer eyes, we can see the evil that's at work in the world to twist what is true and to deceive people. And how it holds real people under its sway and takes them down the path of destruction. And how it sets itself against God and everything that is true and good and beautiful. It will stop at nothing in its salts against those 
who are God's. Seeking to do so to assault them by bloodshed and deception. And if we can see that, then we will also then shout in triumph as the lamb pours out his wrath against the beast and its regimes are toppled and burned, especially with the finality that we will see at the end. We ought to pray for these sorts of regimes and and institutions that are set so antithetically in these ways. We ought to pray for them to fall. But we can't also forget that there are real people who stand in these systems. Real individuals who are made in God's image. Perhaps even close and beloved friends and family. Well, Revelation makes it clear that there are only two sets of people. There are those with the mark of the beast, and there are those who are sealed by the Lamb. Those who are under the power of darkness, and those who have been brought into the kingdom of light. In other words, there are those who have the wrath of God hanging over them, and then those whom the land, for whom the Lamb intervened and took the wrath of God in their place as he hung on the cross. The text warrants this question then. Which side are you on? Because friends, if you're not on the side of the Lamb, then there is a very real wrath that is in store for you. And I say this this morning here, not, as, not, not to judge, but as a warning. Because there's not anything more, there's no, there's no one any more deserving. There's nothing more deserving in me or in anyone else that would warrant God's mercy. It's simply because of Jesus and of his grace and mercy that he died to make his enemies his friends. That the spirit came and, and softened hearts that were already hardened to, to then come in faith. And that Jesus would then reconcile those who are hostile towards him by the blood of his cross. Where are you positionally? Are you aligned with the lamb who took God's wrath? Because if not, you're aligned with the beast and you will fall as surely as it will. And friends, I say this this morning here because I want you to see that if you are of the beast, I want you to see how you are deceived. That there is a power and a sway in this world that is very strong and you need to see that. You need to have your eyes opened Because the sooner we can see that, the better. And what we need to see is our second point. The powerlessness of the beast. God sends seven bowls full of his wrath upon the world. The number seven in Revelation is a symbolic number of completeness. So these aren't necessarily to be taken in a strict chronological order, but are various manifestations of God's wrath poured out in totality upon the beast and his dominion. And each of these plagues then symbolically exposes the beast for what it truly is. Impotent, powerless, a false security and unable to save. Again, if we understand this in light of the Old Testament exodus, it opens our understanding to it all. Each of the ten plagues sent upon Egypt weren't only a display of God's power and judgment, They were specifically sent as a sort of polemic against the Egyptian deities that the Lord was the true God. And for much of the the Egyptian societal and economic structures, they were melded then closely with their gods. For example, Happy was the god of the Nile and was supposedly had then had power over all the agriculture and economic reliance that Egypt had upon it. So that when God turned the Nile River into blood, That he showed that the Lord had power not only over happy, but that he was exposing the powerlessness over a central part of their 
societal system that they trusted in. And it's a similar idea with these bulls. Each is a plague poured out upon some realm of dominion over the beast that, it, that its followers trust in as an alternative power to save. And each then, each plague here, each bull shows the impotence of the beast, uh, that they show its true inability and powerlessness when it is pitted against the lamb. And what's really important for us to recognize then here is that the beast's power ultimately holds out false promises at best. Uh, The first bull is poured out upon the earth, and it says that the mark of the beast is powerless to protect those who have it. The mark of the beast's protection and promises of security turn out to be powerless against the lamb. Uh, Human powers and authorities, governments, uh, regimes and revolutions can do nothing to save us. They can do nothing to bring about an end to human suffering. There are bowls that are poured out upon the world's economic systems that are reliant upon the waters, which are then turned to blood. They're powerless as well. There is no hope, there is no lasting protection to be found in economic power. There are bowls poured out upon the sun and even upon the throne of the beast. There's no relief that's in sight. The sun scorches in a relentless discomfort. The kingdom of the beast is, turned, is thrust into darkness and also provides no comfort. Life is instead spent in anguish under the cover of darkness. And the beast, who once showed great promises, shows himself to not to be a savior, but to be a cruel master. The last two bowls then are only ones in a chronologi- are the only ones that we have here in a chronological sense. And they're associated with the coming of Jesus and the end. The sixth bowl here is of the nations being deceived and then coming to wage final assault against God's people. And the path is is open for them. The the Euphrates River is, is, is dried up and there's a clear path then for them to gather and to go in the march against God's people. But what seems to be an advantage to attack the church actually turns out to be the, the means of their defeat, it says. Uh, the last bowl, the seventh then, is poured upon the air. Uh, consider how Ephesians 2.2, it refers to uh, Satan as the prince of the power of the air. And the final bowl of wrath is poured out then here upon the air, upon his dominion. And his earthly power is seen through the symbolic city of Babylon. And it's split into pieces And all the nations who are allied with it also falls. There is no earthly city that will shelter you from the storm. The supposed strength of the world will do nothing to protect you from what's to come. All of your hopes and trust that you place in what you see and what you experience, any time that you trust in that, it will leave you stripped bare in the face of God's wrath. See, the bulls reveal the illusions of power in the world. They open our eyes to see that there is no power of the world that can save us or to provide real lasting hope for humanity. All of what we want to put our hopes in as saviors or as means of relief are exposed as being inadequate. There is no political party, there is no platform, there is no candidate who will provide the relief that we need. There is no economic theory or power structure that will give you true security, or hope. All of them are inadequate. And the bulls pull down the facade of their deception to show just how powerless they are. But there's something tempting in that, though. Uh, there's, 
We like things that we can touch and see to give us hope. And even when we're aware of, of, of what they really are, there's still an allure that it has sometimes. There's like the hopeful cry that our ears are attuned to at times. And so that's our, our third point then that we need, which is the watchfulness of the church. Verse, or in chapter 16, verse 15. In the midst of these bowls, even when the circumstances here seem to be most severe near the end, Jesus has words to his church, and he says, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Jesus has words to his church in the middle of all this, even when things heat up. And he says, keep watch. Because he's coming at an unexpected moment like a thief. At a sudden moment, your hope will come. Stay awake. Don't get sleepy. Keep an eye out for him. Be expectant. Don't fall asleep and just lie down. Because these times in which we live require vigilance. Vigilance in maintaining where your hope lies. And having your eyes open to the deceptive alternatives that are all around you, that are vying for us. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall prey to them. Instead, keep your robe on. Don't be exposed. Keep your robe on. Remember the righteousness of the spotless lamb who is given for you. Because the thing that will be be exposed in the end won't be you. It'll be the powerlessness of the world. Jesus' words are vital for us because things will heat up. None of us are immune to the allures of the beast. When you face the persecutions and the attacks of the world because you are aligned with the lamb, you're going to suffer. And the natural response to suffering is to seek relief. The promise of relief will come from the world that if you sell out and if you join in, then you you won't be on the receiving end of the fury of the beast. You'll be told that relief will come through assimilation, through compromise, through aligning yourself with the powers that are at at hand, or that hope will come by means of earthly power. The thing is, none of us like rejection. None of us like discomfort. We all, all of us want a place to find relief and comfort and acceptance. But the words of Jesus here that he speaks amid his times of judgment here, amid the bulls, are there to encourage you and to remind you of where true relief is found. That the saints, that you in Christ are sealed with a victory already. And that the lamb who has already accomplished victory for you over the forces of the world and of the beast will come then swiftly to your aid in its due time. Don't sell out. Remember who you are. Cling to your robes in times of trouble. The white robes of Jesus given to you to cover all your sins and blemishes, even when you're tempted to give in. And remember the vision from the beginning that the saints are already gathered around the sea of fire, singing of the Lamb's salvation and rescue. See, we know the ending. We don't know all the dramatics. We don't know the the dangers that will inevitably arise, all the twists and turns along the way. But the important thing is that we do know the ending. And it ends in triumph and it ends with songs of praise to the Lord who rescues. And you might not know now. You might not know how. But you will make it through to the end because Jesus guarantees you the victory that was already accomplished by him.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a vision like this. Thank you that there is victory that we have that's already won. And Lord, though, we, we, we realize all around us about the, the nature of, 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 the, of the, the forces that seek to do us harm and to pull us away. And Lord, there are times even when we, when we read passages like this too where we come to the wrath of, of the Lamb and we wonder, what do we make of this? But yet soften our hearts to this. And Lord, encourage our hearts with this, knowing that this world is not victorious, but that it is Jesus Christ who sits ascended already in victory and we with him. That is the end and that is what we look forward to. And so encourage our hearts along the way. Strengthen us, even week by week. Remind us of the robes that are ours in Jesus. And keep our eyes focused ahead as we run our race with endurance. In Jesus' name, amen.